and welcome along to the latest Leaders Performance Podcast. My name is David Cushnan, Head of Content at Leaders. With me, as always, John Porch, Lead Writer at the Leaders Performance Institute. John, hello. Hello, David. How's it going? Very well indeed. And I'm excited about this podcast because we're delving into the exciting world of track and field. Absolutely. I spoke to Neil Black, who's the Performance Director at British Athletics. I went to see him at the National Performance Institute in Loughborough, actually. And what was on the agenda? Well, Neil told me that he has a real knack for understanding strategy and people. And that came in useful as he's a former athlete who then became a physio, who then rose through the ranks at British Athletics. And he talked a lot about how his approach has evolved down the years. But I was also struck, David, by his admission that he can still be emotionally moved when working with athletes he's worked with in the past. So it's a bit of a cliche, perhaps, but it's still a people business. You're exactly right, John. Looking forward to this uh, conversation. Should we get straight into it? Let's get on with it. This is hardly your first role in British athletics. Could you please outline your backstory and the journey that's led you here? Yeah, um, I I was an athlete uh, who was probably a national standard athlete who made lots and lots of mistakes, got injuries that uh, basically stopped me from progressing and recognizing my potential. Uh, That overlapped with studying as a physiotherapist. um, And I tried my best to avoid working in sport as a physiotherapist because it seemed as though that was too easy. But after a period of time working in other aspects of therapy, I realized that sport was really drawing me towards it. So then I went and threw myself into sports therapy as as a career. Um, Gradually became more and more interested in how medical teams worked in support of performance. That overlapped with, well, how does the medical team work with the science team in support of performance? So I became positions that were the equivalent of lead for science and medicine trying to make sure that science and medicine teams were supporting coaches and athletes in a positive way. And uh, through that, I became part of the uh, senior leadership team within British Athletics and had an experience working alongside head coaches, performance directors over an eight-year period that led me to becoming more and more interested in taking on this role and and other people recognising that perhaps I had some of the skills and abilities to do so. And what would be some of those skills then that you feel that you bring to the table? I, I seem to have... I believe, and others tell me, an ability to uh, almost, you know, to look at the strategy, to look forwards, to to be able to see where we are now relative to where we need to be and to be able to plan that. And I'm reasonably patient. So I'm, I'm looking forwards rather than focusing on the here and now. I definitely have an understanding of athletes an understanding of coaches, an understanding of how they work together and what they variably require in terms of things to support their performance. And therefore, it's, again, relatively easy for me to see that the focus is about providing athletes and coaches with information to help them to make better decisions. And I understand that um, we all work within bigger organizations or within the bigger structure and so it's not just about track and field it's about all of the sports within the broader performance system Um, it's about your working relationship with the public with media with 
UK sport, with funding agencies, with government, and I think to be a performance director, you've got to at least understand that and to appropriately engage. And I think probably the other thing, and I, and I learned about budgets and um, you know all, all those things which you have to at least understand, understand people, and then not least, but I think it helps massively to because my role is over both the Olympic and the Paralympic program. So um, through therapy working with people, people with disability, overlapping with sport and disability, Paralympics, that brings, again, you know, a kind of fuller uh, awareness of the, the spectrum needed to be able to form this type of role. And yours is like an umbrella role. You're able to have a helicopter view. We can use any number of analogies, I guess. But what does a typical working week look like for you outside of a major games? Yeah, and... And, and obviously, as many people would say, that there isn't necessarily a typical working week, but the job generally is there's a strategic element to it. So what am I doing about the strategy? So that's being part of the, the senior leadership team within British Athletics, which is different to the senior leadership team within performance of, of British Athletics. Um, that's about reporting into the, the UK or the British Athletics Board. That's about um, reporting in and or working with UK Sport, who are our primary uh, kind of funding agency. So there's, there's, an, there's always an element of strategy, whether that's attending things that are strategy related or whether it's contributing to from afar by the various different modern communication systems. Then there's a, um, a people management bit, you know, that's always there. What am I doing to manage, direct, support, challenge the, um, the performance senior leadership team and the people who I am directly line managing to make sure that they are making, you know, kind of doing and feel supported in everything that they do. Uh, and then there's a, an athlete and coach element to it that says who, who are or what are the kind of critical athlete and coach bits that need my attention, interest, contribution. And then there's the same thing associated with the support services. But I've learned over time that uh, you know, a question I, I ask myself all the time is, is this for me or should I be passing this to some, someone else? And I think that's a, it's a critical question that you get better at answering as you go along. In, in earlier days, with lesser experience, it's easy to fall into the trap of thinking that you have to be involved with lots of things. And now I understand that to a degree, the less I'm involved with directly, probably the better it is in, in terms of an indication that things are going well. And how does your role change then during the build-up and execution of the Games? Does it become more hectic? Um, is there a greater sense of urgency than before? In some ways, yes, but, but in others, perhaps not. The, the, um, it's more targeted. So in, in the immediate build-up to the Games, my, my focus is really on the performance of the athletes and everyone working with them in that competition. That is the primary goal um, and, and I therefore tend to do as little as possible in, in all the other aspects of the role. So this is really about are we going to perform well in this 
competition. And, and so that's being there, thinking about it, not being distracted, making sure that in effect, you know, every moment of every day is about who needs support, who needs challenge, who just needs some time. Where is, where are, and where is everyone at? And that could be energy levels, relationships, understanding, focus, information, resource, whatever it may be. So yeah, uh, particularly going into a global championships, the period of time from the, the British Championships and or the trials event into the competition is, is really focused on maximizing the performance uh, at that competition. And outside of, of that, it, you know, it, it goes back to what's the, the spectrum that you need to kind of be covering and uh, of the other things that I've highlighted. And how has your role evolved and developed since you first took the position in 2012? Most of the people who I've spoken to who've come into the performance director role for the first time all say the same things. They, if they're honest, they didn't really have a clue what they were doing to begin with. It wasn't that I didn't know what I was doing, it was that what I thought it was going to involve and what it does involve are quite different. And at the beginning, I was a bit like a headless chicken. And I, I remember just running around and almost kind of thinking that that the more things I was involved with, the more meetings I had, the more people I met, uh, the more things I did were an indication of something that was says you're doing the role well. And learning through experience, and over time, I learned that actually, if you are doing the role well, you are, you're busy in a different way, but it's certainly not measured by the quantity, it's perhaps measured by the quality and so on that way, but it's being really clear about what the things are that you need to do, being really clear about how you're directing, communicating, managing the strategy, being really clear about the key people and who needs support and the different different personalities, um, being really clear, as I said a moment ago, about um, where you pass things to other people because you don't need to be involved. And so it's changed in the sense that I, I think that I'm much more calm. I think I appear to be far less busy and I now am I'm in, in control of what I do in a very thoughtful way and the, uh, what I do with my time, whereas in the earlier stages uh, I was lesser so. And to what extent have you been called upon to continue building on the culture of your predecessors or were you in fact given a blank canvas? Uh, I was given a blank canvas really. Albeit that there are elements of what we're doing now which are a continuation of a theme. So we, uh, in terms of the, the model of multiple performance centres and or the centralisation thought process, we were already on the journey of reducing the number of primary performance centres that we uh, worked in or or from and we simply took that to the next level which was reducing it further and focusing on um, Loughborough as the as the you know it's called various things but it's, it's called the National Performance Institute and it's 
it, we call it the, the, the central driver of our performance system. Um, so that was a, a further refinement and evolution of, of that that was, was occurring. Um, that uh, meant that we were really centralizing resource around one center pr primarily. But in terms of uh, the working relationship with UK Sport and the working relationship with BOA and BPA, that, that is actually quite different. And that was, um, I suppose I was the driver of the change in the working relationship, which was a one of a, a move towards being um, more inclusive, more open, um, sharing and in closer to a true partnership than had previously been the case where as a sport we hadn't been quite as open and certainly not working in partnership with some of the other organisations. And, and it's not that that was bad and this is good, it was just quite different. And just looking at your website, there's a lot of information there about culture, people and places. As it pertains to your role, what do those mean in practice, culture, people and places? Yeah, that, uh, and that, that's not an easy question to, to answer. Honestly, I think people give lots of answers to questions like that. I am a great believer that, you know, I suppose the, the culture thing to me is probably reasonably summed up by this is, this is how we do things or this is how we do things around here or whatever it may be. I'm a great believer that people should uh, be happy in their work, should have clarity of what the strategy is, what their contribution is, um, what the expectation is that we should be professional, courteous, um, thoughtful, inclusive, or, you know, all, all those words. But at the same time, we are about performance. And when you, and if you look at uh, our competitors around the world, many of our competitors to win medals in global championships are headed up by small professional coaching groups, often um, supported or funded by a commercial a shoe company or something in that nature. And they are perhaps not as aware of whether people are happy in their role, clarity about their role, courteous, professional, good communication skills, and so on. They're, they're really interested in, does the person have the skill sets to support an athlete to win a medal and if they do they're in and if they don't they're out. Neil what is a performance plan system and if you could give me an overview of that what it might look like as it pertains to the Olympic team or Paralympic team. We rightly or wrongly do break time into four-year cycles and that's predominantly because of the funding model that we work to uh, in association with UK sport and, and government and lottery monies and so on that way. So the, you know, our primary income stream comes from lottery and exchequer and the processes and the system that we work to and that are broken into four-year cycles. We certainly more recently have and supported by that the British Athletics Board uh, have been working much longer term and thinking much more, yes, we understand four-year cycles, but we have to really look longer term. 
So um, in, in terms of the four-year cycle, we go through a process of, in effect, writing a strategy that we put into UK Sport. It goes through an evaluation process. You know, it's quite comprehensive. And the outcome of that is a confirmation that the, the broad strategy is agreed and it comes with it uh, an award, a budgetary award that says we've supported your strategy and we confirm the award that you have over the next four years and the processes of review and uh, re-evaluation and so on with it. At the British Athletics board level, we have something that says, you know, what's the vision for the athletics in the UK at a broader level and what is our strategy and what are the elements? And obviously some of that is the same and some of that is looking at participation, some of that's looking at uh, officials, some of that's looking at educating and developing coaches, what's our talent pathway, so it's, it's much bigger and broader and it's, it's a, a more longer term uh, kind of thought process. So you have to obviously marry the two uh, and um, so the, 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 the skill to a degree is making sure that we're working at the appropriate rate to meet the short and medium term goals of the UK sport in this cycle, the Tokyo 2020 strategy, whilst planning for the Paris cycle and just that understanding there. And at the same time, having that broader outlook that says, well, what's our contribution to the overall strategy of athletics in the UK, which is a much longer term thought process. And are you also mindful of uh, competitions such as World Championships or, or Europeans as well? How does that feed in and complement those programmes during the four-year cycles? Yeah, uh, within the, the, that four-year performance uh, cycle, the, it's the global championships that are the key milestone targets. So it's how we perform uh, in World Championships and Olympic Games in uh, World Para Athletics Championships and Paralympic Games that are the primary measures of what we do. And then there are intermediary targets for things like Commonwealth Games, European Championships, indoor competitions. And, and within performance, we have a prioritized uh, kind of competition timetable that starts with the Olympics and the Paralympics are our number one priority going all the way down uh, in the sense of you know to uh, age group competitions and our approach to each one of those competitions is outlined so that at any one time everyone should have a fairly clear picture as to you know the European Championships in Berlin are coming up uh, this summer where is that competition in our priority and how are we approaching it? For example, we will look to take a, a bigger team to give experience um, to a, you know, a larger number of people as part of that journey. Whereas if we were going into the, or when we go into the uh, Olympic Games in particular in Tokyo, we'll be looking at a smaller team with a real focus on winning medals as a generalization right. just making it simple and if you reflect on say the rio olympics or the world championships in london last year 
What were some of the challenges you overcame to deliver your plans for those uh, competitions? Well, if we start with Rio, you know, there, there were all of the logistical challenges, but they're the same for everyone else in the world of just being, you know, in Rio, journey times, uh, some of the challenges associated with security, you know, st stick in, in most people's minds. In, in the performance sense, the challenges were no real different to, to that that they would be for any other competition. You know, the, the weather wasn't extreme. There, there weren't any major significant performance challenges. In London 2017, one of the challenges is, is you know, despite all of the huge benefits of a, a home world championships, the challenge for the home nation is almost kind of how do you get yourself up for it? And so we chose to go out of the country and based ourselves in Paris for preparation camp beforehand. And I think that was a really wise decision. Uh, so you could say, you know, we overcame that challenge of how do you almost kind of mimic that thing that you're going to the most important event of the year or, you know, within a four year cycle, but it's on your doorstep. And some people, you know, would have stayed at home and uh, or stayed in their normal training facility and although that might be good for a small number, most people feel as though they have to be doing something different and or special as their preparation. So I think we dealt with the, the challenge of that um, uh, by, by uh, going to Paris. And again, you know, brilliant to be able to use Eurostar and uh, make the journeys easy and so on that way. And then probably the, the next biggest challenge was the dealing with the expectation. The expectation is that the home nation does really, really well and wins lots of medals. And that changes mindsets. And if, as it happened with us, um, you don't get uh, a lot of momentum in the early stages of the competition, then that can lead to, you know, a, a, almost a, a, f a sense of things are not going well, things are not going to go well. And therefore the challenge was how to keep people up keep people really focusing and determined to just carry on doing their job to the best of their ability to persevere you know through to the to the very end irrespective of, of what was happening knowing that the expectation and therefore when medals are not coming on a daily basis the the the, the commentary starts to turn negative that was probably the biggest challenge i would say and I imagine each and every games and competition is unique in its own way, presents its own sets of challenges. Um, but if you reflect on, say, London or Rio, were there applicable learnings you took from those experiences into, say, the World Indoor Championships in Birmingham or ahead of the European Championships this summer or even looking to the next Worlds in Doha? Um, the, the biggest learning for, for us is probably reflected in the developments within the relay program uh, over the last couple of years in particular. Um, you know, the, the snapshot would be that it, as recently as 2015, for various reasons, the, the history was that athletes and or their personal coaches and perhaps even the organization itself didn't take relays quite as seriously, that relay medals historically weren't as valued as individual medals and that relay athletes used to contribute to the relay if they wanted to once their individual performance was had, was completed 
and uh, we, again, for lots of reasons, decided that we wanted to do that differently and, and therefore we went through a process of working with UK Sport to change the, um, and this was supported by the British Athletics Board, to change the way the relay teams were, or relay athletes were supported on the world-class programme. And historically, everyone was supported individually. And we, we were supported in the change to say that the only athletes in 100 metres, 200 metres, 400 metres um, who would be supported individually were those who nobody would dispute were clear individual medal contenders in global championships. And that everyone else would be classified as a relay programme athlete as opposed to an individual. And that meant a clarity of commitment. The purpose that you are part of this program is to be a relay runner as opposed to an individual runner. And that gave the athletes and their coaches more clarity and gave us more. It was easier for us to encourage, stroke, enforce their involvement in relay activities as opposed to individual activities. At the same time, we, we really put far much more time, effort and organisation into the relay programme, a much greater commitment to it, um, supported by more people. Uh, and we discussed, uh, obviously crit critical, discussed with the athletes and as many of their personal coaches who wanted to contribute, you know, what the relay programme should look like. And we got them, therefore, to agree, support, because it was in part or a large part what they wanted to do exactly how we were going to apply ourselves to it right down to some of the real critical decisions and and some of the uh, people wouldn't necessarily know this uh, the real critical decisions are around how do you select the people who who run in the relay and and how do you make uh, the changes in selection between the qualifying round and the final which are usually on the same day which uh, certainly for the four by 100 meters, which gives you minimal time in a very, very busy period. And one of the things that caused athletes the most concern were that they weren't sure about um, what factors were going to be taken into account to pick the team, what factors would be taken account to uh, around any changes in the team between the qualifying rounds and the final, um, and what the process would be for telling the athletes who was in the team and who wasn't. And by clarifying that process and being consistent with it, we took away most of the athletes' fears, concerns, things that you know kind of caused them distress because they didn't know, they, historically they hadn't been sure what was gonna happen and they weren't confident in the decision-making process. Having confirmed the commitment to it, um, applying ourselves to a new process, being consistent in the application of that process has, has it's, it's been a, like a monumental change in how we collectively perform in relays. And, and I don't think that was accidental that we, for the first time, won medals in all four relays in London 2017. The challenge, of course, is to maintain that and to become consistent medalists in all or the majority of relays going forwards.
Um, so that's probably the best thing I can use to describe what we've learned and how we've applied ourselves to it. And, and we, we now use that learning and apply it back towards the individual athletes um, and say, well, if we've been able to achieve that with a group and as a team in what is in effect an individual sport, it must be relatively easy to take the learnings from that and apply it back to the individuals. Given the meticulous level of preparation and the questions you're asking of yourselves as a performance star, does anything surprise you anymore? Does anything surprise me anymore? Apart from my question, of course. <laughs> no, I mean, you, you, you know, you, I, I think it's, it, it would be wrong to say that things don't surprise me. It's much less often that I come across anything that shocks, surprises, that I hadn't at least thought of. And, and so there, there are fewer surprises. The, the, th the things that are, for me, the most difficult are the things uh, that relate to people's, people's reactions based around their emotions and, and so I am still occasionally surprised at how people react to certain circumstances based around how they obviously feel about it and one of the things that may be interesting for the people who read or listen is that um, having been a physiotherapist working with the athletes at, at, you know in that role and, and you, gen you, you, you get very close to people and you're generally seen as somebody who, and I've been called the fixer or whatever it is, who you know fixes the problems. And as the performance director, sometimes you are the fixer, but actually, more often than not, you're perceived as being the person who is um, sometimes not letting people do what they want to do or not letting not not finding solutions but people perceive you as coming up with obstacles so for me i ha i and obviously some of the athletes are were very young at that time but were the same athletes that i'm now dealing with here and so the difference between my working relationship with them you know 10 15 20 years ago as a therapist to an athlete now as the performance director to an athlete that's very, very different. And occasionally, at an emotional level, I am surprised at how I feel about what happens and what is said. That's probably the only thing that's occasionally, but I'm probably highlighting that I'm slightly surprised at how I feel about it. With regard to that, how do you feel the relationships between athletes and high-performance staff are developing or evolving? Or you know, how are the demands on coaches or indeed athletes changing and evolving? I think as a generalization, it's, it's, everything is becoming more professional. Everybody is, is more prepared, uh, understands more clearly uh, almost the commitment required, the work required, and is more efficient uh, in that sense. Um, I think the expectation, if anything, is higher. It certainly feels that way, and therefore... As, as things become more professional, 
as in this country, we've um, won more medals, and there is, you know, there is a, a mantra of, well, let's win more medals than we did last time. And even within our sport, uh, you know, we have a, a vision statement that says more medals in more events. I think, I think there is a degree of pressure to perform, to do better, that feels as though it might be even greater than it was in the past. And I think all the things under the heading of, of culture, mental health, due diligence and a number of other related almost kind of buzz phrases means that um, people are having to be even more thoughtful about everything they do, everything they say. And it, it, it crops up in, in every conversation, or not every conversation, it crops up in a conversation every day that says, well, I used to say things like, but I probably can't now, or we used to do, but we wouldn't really do that now, and or we used to record basic information, handwritten, that was a simple summary of the interaction, and now it has to be on a database. In terms of a power balance, I guess, has it shifted in favour of the coaches and the performance staff? Or is it more in favour of the athletes? And what does that look like now and how has that changed in recent years? That's a great question. Um, I, I think at the, at the highest level of performance, the, the power has always been and probably always will be with the athletes. And, and wherever there is a, what most people would call a, a, a good working relationship between athlete and coach, you, you, I don't think you can really separate them. And so the, and, and I know power is an interesting word that we won't bore people to, to debate, but using it in the, in the context that you have, you know, the, the power is with the athlete and or the athlete and coach where the relationships are appropriate, good, sensible, and so on that way. Agents in track and field have become more and more prominent. And so I wouldn't say that Actually, no. I, again, at the highest level, I wouldn't say that agents have power or, or too much power in the sense that I think you're, you're asking. But I would be slightly worried that at lower levels of performances and with younger, evolving athletes on a pathway, I would have a slight concern that agents and or sometimes coaches who are at an earlier stage in their journey are at times influencing too much power or just too much influence. And again, the working relationship between the national governing body, the athlete, the coach, the agent, the shoe company, the commercial manager, and so on, you know, is, is a fascinating one, and a, a one that we've learned to evolve with. And again, these are using uh, examples that I, I wouldn't want to think that we're uh, suggesting this is what always happens, but as an example, we probably used to think that agents 
were outside of the team as we saw it were not always a positive influence and should be kept at arm's length. And what we've learned you know, over time is that the majority of agents uh, can be and should be uh, really important members of the team around any athlete who can be hugely positive and that we should be um, you know, working really closely, openly, positively with, you know, give or take a few outliers that y you get in everything. So again, that would just be an example of, of you know, some of the changes and um, that just the final thing is that you know, for, for as athletes become more successful, uh, and particularly if success equates to fame and or income, then sometimes that makes the working relationship between the national governing body and the athlete um, a different one. Uh, and and the probably the best way of describing that is that it's and I do understand this, that sometimes as athletes become more successful, they struggle to see what support they get from the national governing body. So how do you see your role developing during the next Olympic cycle? Yeah, oh, well, in the last couple of days, it's just coincidental, I've been with a group of performance directors uh, ac across the um, the network and and that was one of the questions you know what are very very important the strategies important the overviews important um, somebody who is taking that aerial view and and so on is absolutely critical and and their view would very much be that that's what a performance director should do and I, and I don't disagree with that but it obviously if you look at all the different sports Olympic and Paralympic sports which is obviously what we deal in across the British landscape, you know, there's the, the, the size varies dramatically. You know, small number of athletes, very little staff, minimal budget through to bigger sports like ourselves, swimming, rowing, cycling, uh, you know, and, and hockey and others. Um, I agree with the concept and I, I do think that somebody has to drive the strategy, have the overview and, and, and give the direction and take responsibility for what is happening. I think the question is going to be whether all sports can uh, retain uh, that role as a full-time position within their organisation um, if there is less uh, budget available through lottery and government and or if the uh, national governing bodies can't through commercial routes provide you know income to, to support that and and therefore what could happen if there's less money uh, available or they just you know you have to allocate your resource according to, to priority need it could look and it, and it might be that roles that combine CEO type positions and performance director positions and my fellow performance directors you know kind of turn in their graves or whatever the live equivalent of that is at this thought but there, there could be a combining there or the other obvious thing is to combine head coach roles with performance director kind of roles in other words you know there's a coach strategy 
drive or a commercial strategy drive. I, I, I honestly don't know what's going to happen, but we are obviously having internal conversations about what does the future look like under the heading of succession planning and just longer term planning and planning for different levels of um, awards and budgets and supports uh, and we're probably uh, retaining a degree of flexibility within that that says we could go either way according to need and or the prioritisation of the organisation at the time. Yeah, well, I think that's a perfect place to finish. Thank you very much.